You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 56 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And greetings from the Sachem Public Library's booth recording studio in Holbrook, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. Remember to join our email subscription service on our webpage, thelibrarypros.com. And please consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague because word of mouth is how people learn about us. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. So today joining us is Dr. Matthew Finch. Matthew Finch sounds so, so formal. Fancy. Wow. <laughs> So Matt received his PhD in intellectual history from the University of London and is a library consultant that gives ideas and makes good things happen. Uh, he's presented at conferences all over the place, from the United States to Europe to Asia and Oceania. Is that a, is that a thing down under? I don't really. Or is that just an Americanized thing? I think it's an American high school geography thing, potentially. Like, let's lump everyone in the south into sort of one big yeah. carrier bag. So we're going to say Australia, because yeah. Australia really is a continent, Australia, right? Australia, yeah, it is. I okay, mean, we'll explain this to my kids there. later, because they argue with me about that all the time. Ah. But what about, like, half of New Guinea and, and the Pacific Islands? I'm like, oh, whatever. Um, so he also has a website called MechanicalDolphin.com. So thanks for making this long trip and, and coming to speak to us today. We're really excited to have you. My complete pleasure. Thank you for having and, me. And if anybody listens who's heard us and talked to Sally Turbot and Amy uh, Waldock um, about uh, their podcast, Turbot and Duck, he is indeed the voice of Turbot and Duck. <laughs> Cultural expertise and library sass since 1885. Uh-uh. <laughs> nice. That carries quite a following, Chris. It sure does. So we're going to speak with Matt today about his vision uh, for the future of libraries and what he's seen in his experiences in library land. But first, let's chat with Matt and get to know a little bit more about him. So Matt, tell us about your background pre-PhD. Oh, look, pre-PhD is probably less interesting than what happened just afterwards. So I was a student and I really was aiming to be an academic. I did this this doctorate that was about refugees from the Nazis and a library that moved uh, from Germany to the United Kingdom. Uh, and that was the culmination of sort of nine years of the student lifestyle, which involves, you know, being locked in an old-fashioned library, looking at things on shelves, looking at stuff in archives, and sitting around in your pajamas watching Blue's Clues at 10 o'clock <laughs> in the morning when you should be working. And then finally, in my late 20s, I thought probably that's enough time in my pajamas and I should probably put some proper clothes on and go to work. And after finishing the doctorate, I realized I didn't want to be a conventional academic. And I'd actually started mentoring uh, asylum-seeking children so kids that they sort of peeled out the back of a container or kids that were being processed by the, the asylum system in the United Kingdom. And I was mentoring them for a literacy charity. And through that, I ended up being a kindergarten teacher for a couple of years. So I was actually teaching in elementary school um, and went down this completely different path, which involved actually working with communities, working with libraries, but other organizations as well. So I went from being very old school, dry reading handwritten documents from the 1920s and 30s, reading loads of kind of theory and historiography um, to someone who actually wanted to get involved with, with a community and thinking about how to change the world for the better or help people to live well together. So the turning point was actually just after the PhD uh, and someone basically saw me working with these asylum-seeking kids and said, you know, you're quite good at this. You could, you could come and be a kindergarten teacher for a few years if you like. And that was, that was my life-changing moment. Um, but before then, I was basically just a quiet nerd who was reading academic stuff all the time. 
uh, and I never knew it was going to come back into play. Like, I didn't realise that that doctorate would actually come in useful later on. Um, so it was a kind of weird loop for me. That was, that was my experience. That is really cool. So tell us about some of the amazing places you've been as a guest speaker. I see that you've presented for Lianza and IFLA and the British House of Commons, along with Australia's Parliament. You even made it to the Suffolk Cooperative Library System over here in Suffolk County. That was, that was probably the finest and uh, <laughs> most awesome welcome that I've received. What people won't realise on the podcast is that the, the headquarters of the Suffolk Cooperative Library Association is kind of like Ming's Palace from Flash Gordon. <laughs> it's a giant golden temple defended by laser turrets, and there are various guards standing over you as you come in just to give some training to some librarians. The thing is, actually, it's really weird. I did get to speak at the House of Commons, and it actually connected to the, the kindergarten work and the work with asylum-seeking kids. So part of the thing that changed my life was people noticed I had this really good rapport mentoring, uh, mentoring these kids who had these a range of life stories but basically had unfortunately been displaced and were sometimes without their parents or without their family. And basically it was literacy mentoring, but it also covered other things about their lives. And we had a couple of really, really big successes. And we got mentioned in a report. It was funded by Britain's National Lottery. And it was highlighted as one where I'd worked with this kid for a year and it really turned him around as far as you can in a year, an hour a week. And so that's what got me to speaking at the House of Commons. And it was really just a chance to tell that story of someone's else, someone else's life's changing and how we made a difference and the benefit we brought to it, which is the same thing you do now, really, or that I do, is try and help organisations tell the story of what they're about, their mission, their vision, their values. So by retelling that story, it can be about rethinking your purpose but it's also about reaching out to a community and saying, hey, this is who we are, this is what we do. And funnily enough, it doesn't matter if you're in a fancy parliament building or in a rural library service or, you know, in a small suburb somewhere. It's always a bit scary and it always matters. And I think that's actually why one always gets a few nerves beforehand. And as you'll know today, Chris, we, we did an activity that was very participatory and people were having conversations and doing activities. And the fact is, it doesn't really matter if you're someone of great prestige and power or you're someone who has quite a humble job or is in a small community, whether you choose to participate or not makes all the difference. So you can go into a room with 20 people who are in a small town in the middle of nowhere, and if two of them don't like you or don't want to participate, it can be just as big of a hurdle as if you're doing something truly nerve-wracking mm. or like going to Parliament. So actually, weirdly, the small ones are sometimes more challenging, and I really go into it with that same feeling always of thinking, this matters, and therefore... I'm a bit nervous beforehand, and about 5.30 this morning, I was glugging away coffee in, <laughs> on 116th Street in New York, preparing to venture up, and we had a really good morning, I think, didn't we? Oh, absolutely. We had a great time. Yeah, it was, pre it was pretty exciting. So we got 50 people together in a room at Suffolk County, and really the aim is not to talk too much from the podium, but to get people working together and collaborating. Really, part of that is, you know, if you've got 100 people in the room, one person can stand at the podium and kind of preach at you, while 99 people listen, or you can try and get all 100 people sharing their ideas. Uh, that's something that really matters to me, and I think it speaks to what libraries do as well, as places where people can make new connections, new relationships, and places which are quite levelling as well. Like, we all come to the library as a member of the community, and it really doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old, or what your background is, this space is for you to explore on your own terms. And I think it's also true of librarians as professionals, that we, we facilitate other people's journeys to a large extent. That doesn't mean we never teach a class or we, we never proactively sort of push a particular program or service. But I think uh, librarians are really distinctive compared to other professionals because we, we don't possess that same... I say we, I mean, like, it's that thing, I don't have a library degree. It's like, a, I'm not a librarian, I just play one on TV kind of effect. <laughs> but uh, 
But, you know, people who work in library land, it's actually about helping someone else get to where they want to be rather than the way a doctor treats their patient or the way a teacher writes a curriculum or creates a lesson for their student. I think we're great at empowering and facilitating people, and that's a big part of what we do. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it was funny in today's uh, presentation that you did, um, there were people in the audience who I know who can be a little cranky or shy, and you struck the library chord in them. Hmm. And that is like the equalizer that makes them all want to come out of the shell. Right. So you really struck that chord with them, and it was nice to see those people all come out and be participatory, and there was nobody there sitting in the corner with their arms folded. So yeah. that was really, you really hit it out of the park with that. Well, I think there's a nice thing. This this came up in the discussion. There's a There was an essay from 1934 by this Spanish philosopher, Ortega y Gasset, called The Mission of the Librarian, which I only read because I thought it would have some fancy quotes in it. I was basically trying to show off. Um, and I thought maybe there'll be one or two quotable things from 1934 that would actually be, be useful or they'll make me sound flashy. And it turned out to be this great essay about what path you choose in life and the consequences of that. Like you see that people have been librarians before you, so you follow that path. Maybe you change the path or you veer off the path for a time, but you're also going to hand that profession down to the generations that follow you. And not just in some cosmic philosophical way, but actually by your practical choices, the buildings, the services, the codes of conduct. Like what you choose to do as a librarian creates a legacy and it builds on a legacy of what's gone before. And I think people respond to that however much we disagree in library land, however much we want to change or not change library services. I think a lot of people are here for vocational reasons. How did you become interested in speaking about libraries, Matt? Well, it, do you know, it probably only happened in about 2011, weirdly. So I'd been doing this work with the asylum-seeking kids, and uh, I transitioned from being a school teacher to working with community organizations and museums, and even doing some corporate education. Um, there was a lot of stuff before the global financial crisis where companies were still throwing money at community outreach, education programs. And so I'd gone into that because I could see that school teaching was like a kind of tramway. Like, you were really only going to be able to follow this one career path. And I thought there was probably more we could do for the community. Uh, and I found myself in New Zealand. I was writing for an education magazine. And I, I happened to be writing about libraries because they were doing, like, a create-a-superhero competition for the children of Christchurch in New Zealand. Uh, and then the earthquakes happened. So um, Christchurch suffered, I think, three earthquakes in the space of a year. It was incredibly devastating. It took them a long time to bounce back, and the people in Libraryland may know they've just opened a glorious five-story high-tech central library that's really a, a sort of world-beating public library institution now, but that's, you know, sort of seven years after the quakes. Um, and so I was there, and I thought, in my foolishness, that, you know, after an earthquake, librarians are the first public servants who'll go home. Like, they'll send the librarians home first, because what are you going to do in an earthquake? And actually, they were incredibly, not only heroic, but innovative in their response. So not only were they sort of crawling through the wreckage to make sure that the collections were okay and sort of making sure that their own services were intact, but they actually, they did things like they became the people who issued the permits to get into the red zone, which was the dangerous part in the heart of the city. So they took on that job. Um, their social media team was so good that they actually took over doing social media for the city. So it freed up staff to do other things. Um, and the one that I really liked was even in libraries that weren't safe to step into anymore, they left the Wi-Fi on. So this was a period, you know, it might be hard to get a cell phone signal. There's just been this massive earthquake which has leveled this city. Um, what are you actually going to do? How are you going to get in touch with your people back home, let people know that you're safe? 
um, they left the Wi-Fi on in the public library. So even if you couldn't go into the building because it was basically in bits, you still had a Wi-Fi signal so you could Skype back home. And I really, really liked that kind of thinking that they had at that level of almost infrastructure and provision. You know, I don't know about in the States, but in a lot of countries there's this argument about, you know, should we turn the Wi-Fi off at night? Right. All this kind of stuff. That's a library-by-library library decision, too. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a really important thing about libraries is I think public libraries particularly have to be deeply local. Like they have to speak to the needs and the demands and the opportunities of the specific community they serve. And I don't think there are many one-size-fits-all rules for public libraries. Um, so in this case, they said we're going to leave the Wi-Fi on because it helps people let others know they're safe. And it's continued to be a thing, admittedly with tensions and contradictions. But if you go to Littleton, which is the harbour in Christchurch, um, often you'll see these kind of weird glimmering lights near the library at night. And what it is is that sailors will come off vessels at strange times of the day and night, and then they'll go outside the library, even if it's closed, and they'll be Skyping with their family back home. Oh, wow. And that, that policy, which I believe emerges from that moment of responding to the earthquakes, has become something that actually affects the character of the whole city. As you know you can go and hang out in the evening near the library, and you'll still have access to that, to that Wi-Fi. Uh, so anyway, so I saw all of this happening. I went, oh, my God, librarians are not what I expected at all. Like, it was truly, it was the equivalent of what happened after the civil unrest in Ferguson, mm -hmm. where Scott Bonner kept the library open even when the schools were closed, proactively recruited educators to serve the community. I suddenly saw that in the, in the extremes of a crisis, public librarians did not just kind of shut up shop, close the shelves and go home, but quite the opposite. They found new ways to serve the needs of the community, the information needs of the community. And that was the turning point for me. I hadn't even considered working with libraries up to that point, despite my PhD connecting to academic libraries and these kind of um, mostly Jewish academic librarians who fled from the Nazis. It had never occurred to me that I would actually find myself working in or with public libraries. But that was the that was the turning point of that journey. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, after we had Hurricane Sandy here in New York, right, the one thing that happened is the libraries opened up the next day. Mm -hmm. And we became charging centers for people because they didn't have electricity. Right. And we uh, turned on the Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. which was the way that maybe your house was underwater or maybe you're, you lost electrics and now your Wi-Fi isn't working. So libraries became a place for that. So you're right. I mean, we open up right away and we do what we have to do. In fact, here at Station, we have a whole building generator. Yeah. So even if they didn't have electric, we could still generate electricity as long as we had the fuel for it. Yeah. So, yeah, librarians step up. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. And sometimes you need to put a system under pressure to realize what it's capable of. And, you know, sometimes if, if life's just ticking along really ordinarily in your community from day to day, everything's fine. Sure, people go to the library. Maybe there's a nice program on. You know, maybe I borrow something. And then it's only when suddenly something happens which increases the pressure on your community. You say, oh, actually, all these people are there ready to help out. And not just responding, but being proactive. So the other thing they did in Christchurch that I loved was they took story times into the emergency shelters so that, you know, as a parent, you've lost your home, you've got your kids and you're in this emergency shelter. You're busy making sure your kids feel confident and safe and happy. So there's been no opportunity for you to freak out or have a serious adult conversation with your partner about what's happened. And the librarian comes and they're this trusted person and they go and have a story time with the kids and the kids' attention is occupied with that and distracted and it was, it was as much for the adults to have a moment to breathe as well. And that was the kind of innovative, creative thinking that really changed my mind about what libraries were or could be. And also I think that reflects now, like if you look at Christchurch libraries in New Zealand today with the reopening of their big, beautiful city centre library, that same spirit 
of what can we do for the community, how far can we go that extra mile. Um, that's something they've brought with them on their brightest day as well as their darkest day, and I really love that. Really is amazing, it's especially good. with the devastation that they had. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. Um, so, in our next segment, we're going to read some tea leaves and talk about um, the future of libraries. But uh, answer this one question for us: What are Amy and Sally from the podcast Turbot and Duck like in person? <laughs> hmm. uh, I would say monsters, <laughs> divas. Uh, shockingly unreliable, uh, borderline criminal. Some people, you know, they just give off a vibe. It's difficult even to look them in the eye because you just know there's malice. There's deep-rooted malice. Uh, and wow. even <laughs> even um, recording the voiceover that introduced the, the Turban and Duck Library podcast, they, they kept me in the basement of the the large gilded <laughs> tower where they record this is big money turbid and duck they have a they have an eight story it's only eight stories but they have an eight story gilded kind of tower uh, in australia <laughs> the, but the basement which is just bare concrete and water pipes um they keep all their assistants and gophers and voiceover people chained up there so it was about a month on bread and water and uh, i worked my way up initially i was just someone who sort of brought things to the production office and then they let me near the recording studio. Then I was allowed to sort their M&Ms because Amy would only eat blue M&Ms. Uh, and then finally, I must have croaked, you know, a cry for help or begging for someone to set me free. And they realized I had an English accent. And they said, we can use you, kid. And from that moment on, they fed me. Uh, I was clothed. Gradually, I was promoted back up to the status of being a human being. And finally, they put me in front of a microphone. Uh, I recorded four or five takes. And then they set me free pushed me out the door onto the streets of Sydney and uh, I had sort of five dollars in my pocket and I had to find my way back home to my family. So I would say it's one of those operations. They're, they're very passionate. They obviously have high expectations of the, of the basically golem-like creatures in the basement. But, you know, they are the only library podcast I know that has a giant gold tower from which they broadcast to the world. Uh, I think that's an entirely accurate and truthful depiction of the Turbot and Duck operation. I don't think we can top that. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Matt about Library Land's experiences speaking with library people from all over the world and future trends. And probably some more about Sally and, uh, and Amy. <laughs> wow, we'll be right back. We are back with Matt Finch from MechanicalDolphin.com. So today, we were fortunate enough, like we said before, to have Matt as a guest speaker over at SCLS. Um, and he did some role-playing with Library Island, which is pretty funny since we live here on an island. Highly appropriate. Mm. So uh, without giving too much away, tell us what the goal was for this exercise, because it was a lot of fun. Oh, I'm really pleased to hear you say that. Um, so Library Island is, is kind of like a role play. It's very simple. It's a simulation of three libraries on a small island in the middle of an ocean somewhere. And there's a mixed demographic. There's an indigenous community, settlers. There are people who are conservative, people who are progressive. And basically, it's a super, simula super simple simulation of running a library service. There are little bits of paper that represent the programs and collections. The community come to the library they ask for services, the librarians provide, 
And there's an organisation called the Ministry of Shelves, which supervises all this and distributes funding and resources. And basically, no one has more than a couple of bullet points to outline their character. So it's not like some big theatrical role play. It's not like improv. But you just let the system run. People interact. Conflicts naturally happen. There are failures of the system. And basically, you run into the problems and the mess that you find in real life. And so the purpose of this is really it serves as a strategic planning exercise, but to encourage us not to think about the future the way you might in a traditional vision document. Like, here's where we want to be five years from now, the golden horizon, everything's going to work out just the way we want. It's trying to get people to remember that the community rarely does what you want or expect them to, that political life is turbulent, that even technological change is turbulent, and actually it's very hard to anticipate what comes next. If you think about uh, the year 2013, for example, if you think back five years, if you knew then what you knew now, what would you do differently? In fact, I want to know from you two, like that's probably a hard question, but if you thought back to 2013, 2013 Chris and Bob, if they could have foreseen 2018, is there anything you would have changed? For me? Professionally, no, because that was a turning point for me. What about you, Bob? 2013, is there anything I would have changed? Uh, investments? Can we talk about investments? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I might have been earlier to introduce some of the technological advances that we've come up with over you know, five years, right? We kind of put that out earlier um, or done a more serious adoption of it. You know, we're, we're usually, as far as commercial and, and um, education, we're usually late to the game to, you know, to adopting those kinds of things. I think I would have jumped it a little stronger. Sure. What was your 2013 turning point, Chris? I was working part-time in another library. And I was trying to figure out what my next step was going to be. After sitting down with Bob and, and discussing some of the options and things that I could do, he introduced me to the, the TIFF group and CATS and all these other mm -hmm. things, and uh, got me involved with that. And that was a turning point for me in my career. Yeah. And uh, it was really a launching point, and then the next year I started at Sachem. So it was, it was one of those pivot moments right. for me professionally. Yeah. 2013 started... Not as a good year because I had an accident. So maybe the one thing I would have done is not gone on the roof that day. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was a pivotal point for me. Right. So I was able to transition professionally. And you see, one of the things that occurs to me about trying to plan for the future, whether at an organizational level or an institutional level, um, is that idea that often we have these pivot points that really can't be planned for, that it might be an encounter or a relationship or something that happens. You know, you mentioned your accident. Part of the reason I spent so much time in Australia a few years ago was I broke my leg embarrassingly and spectacularly while rollerblading so i thought i twisted my leg while rollerblading and then australians mock the english for being whinging poms you may have heard this phrase some point <laughs> so they think we complain all the time mm -hmm. i i am quite happy to complain if i'm injured or feel pain but i decided i had to be stoic so i walked on this apparently twisted leg for three days thinking it was a bad sprain and then on the third day i thought i can't step on this anymore uh, it's just too painful. And I got my flatmate to take me to the doctors and I'd, I'd broken the leg right down at the ankle joint and sort of Ooh. walked it to gravel. So I now have quite a lot of metal in my right leg. Uh, and that also delayed me coming back from Australia from another project. It meant I had to spend more time there. And that meant I also made more connections in Australia. And it was part of the transition to doing more work over there. So it really was a life-changing moment. So the point of the Library Island game, which is very messy and unpredictable, is that we stop thinking of this in terms of we can control the future. Like, there's only one future coming, and it's dependent on our choices. And instead, the reality is things happen, whether it's the outcome of an election, whether it's a change in technology, um, whether it's the global financial crisis. Like, I think a lot of public libraries at the level of a city wouldn't have been able to foresee 
that people making sort of strange debt products in the financial markets would eventually affect the public finances. Um, and then the choices that were made to solve that problem might then impact on funding for public libraries and what people were willing to pay in tax and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's hard to see the knock-ons. So we play these games that are messy and unpredictable to remind us of that fact. And there's an element of empathy because also when you play this game, you could be a librarian who faces a very disruptive, transient member of the public who's effectively homeless and is showing challenging behaviour. But another example which really interested me was that in Oregon, a librarian who considered herself very unbiased and worked very hard to be sort of equal, uh, providing sort of equity of service to the whole community, she ended up in the role of a very conservative character who was campaigning to get a certain kind of book banned from the public library. And the librarian said no, because actually it was within their code to have, this, to have these books within the library. But they dismissed her, and even though her desire was sort of debatable, she said that sense of rejection she felt that her wants and needs were being disregarded made her wonder about how she was treating people with political views that differed from her own. Mm -hmm. So you enter this fantasy island, there's lots of conflict, there's lots of politics, and we can start to talk about difficult things that are sometimes a little bit too close to home. Like if we talk about questions of homelessness or whatever, if we speak specifically of our community, that can be difficult. Um, but once you've talked about it in the fantasy scenario, it's possible to take some of those ideas with you and start to plan for the future. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. And although you say, you know, only give away a little bit and keep it a secret, I'm very keen for people to use it. So people are welcome to get in touch. There is a CC licensed copy with the bare bones of the material. And the aim is that people take it, run with it, change it, transform it. And that's also in the spirit of libraries, of course, that we share. Uh, and hopefully we share professionally as well as sharing with our community. And, and you're right. I mean, because we share a lot of what we do. I mean, I know that you know, if anybody listen, has listened to this podcast, you know that we share everything we talk about. And it, it's one of the things that we love that guests can come on and share. So yeah, right. thank you for sharing, you know, no, no, Library Island. It was an amazing thing. A pleasure. And you were you were on Library Island as well. So if you tell people, that might give them a bit more perspective on what it's like. Yes. So uh, we were uh, part of the uh, Ministry of Shelves. And it was really interesting because uh, some big rich guy came in and bought us all out and took over and set up. And he was a very... Uh, conservative person who was very against the indigenous um, language being used at all. Um, it was actually quite entertaining, although it could be quite frightening as well. Some, if that were to happen in real life, yeah. Um, I don't know that I would have sold that if it was real life, but right. uh, but it was just it was fun to see the reaction of of the other people and to see um, how some of the libraries transitioned. One library actually revolted from the cooperative and became a, a free library. And was feeding the homeless. Right. They were feeding Danish that they had with our breakfast. They took the Danish from they the took... catering table. It was great. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, most of the libraries, they went rogue almost from, from the Ministry of Shelves. Yeah. And they said, well, we're going to do this anyway, and we're going to figure out another way to pay for it. Yeah. Which I think is a, those are the kind of challenges we talk about. So I was, I was doing some co-design work recently with librarians and community members in a public library service in the U.S. And... By including the community in making design choices for the future of a library, they themselves came up with the issue of fundraising. They were looking at a library where the hours were a little shorter. They were now closing on Tuesdays, which they hadn't done historically. And they were trying to come up with ways to get that library reopening on the Tuesday that didn't involve raising tax or going back to the city for a bigger allocation. And so they were suggesting maybe this library needs a fundraising manager. You know, what are the options to seriously generate enough money for an extra day a week? Because, you know, it's not something you can do with a GoFundMe page. Right. 
that's maybe not a scenario we want to consider because of course it would be better if everything was paid for by the city but the reality is one has to start to think about these other options and so the the reason we play these games is it becomes this safe space to say what would you do if right you know what would you do if the values of the government were antithetical to your own uh, it's happening in Sweden at the moment the Swedish democrats uh, who are a party that have some roots in historically in Nazism uh, now hold the balance of power in terms of they're still a small party, but they'll probably decide who are the next government of Sweden. So I was in Malmo in Sweden a couple of months ago working with, with people there, and they're trying to think about what does it mean to be a public servant in relation to the values of the politicians who've been elected, and if there's a tension between your code of conduct and what politicians are saying, how do you manage that? Because these are very fraught times, people's opinions are very polarised, and I still think part of the mission of libraries is to help people to live well together. And I mean, that means defining what it means to live well together, but it, it also means addressing those kind of conflicts. But you're right, though. I mean, librarians help to try to break that, that ice dam that's between people politically and, and remind people that we're all here together and we're all, here, we're all human and we're all supposed to be here helping each other, regardless of what you feel politically. Yeah, I mean, it's a space for everyone in a community, and that means finding a way to be respectful and welcoming and managing all of those expectations and priorities. And you can see librarianship wrestling with this at the moment, like the, the ALA discussions about um, meeting room policy and stuff like that, and the challenge of having a decision like that at a national level versus what that means at a city level, and do you need that national decision as kind of ammunition when you go to your city and say, this is our policy for who's going to be allowed to book a meeting room? A lot of people at various positions on the political spectrum are speaking in very, um, in ways that are kind of very polarised. And what does it mean for you as a, as a public servant, if you are the gateway to knowledge, information and culture for a specific community, like you are the librarian in this town, how are you going to manage and respond to that? Um, I think we, we do these playful activities, but that's at the core of it. Um, I've seen in small town Australia, um, a librarian who is not a degree qualified librarian, but just a sort of local who has the minimum qualification to run a public library, uh, encountering things of what are evidently fake news, like being printed out by people at the, the computers where you can get online in the internet. Like, you can look at things and think, mm, on balance, I don't think that's a very credible news source, and I'm not really sure those things are actually happening in Germany, but fair enough. And so, at that level of the one librarian in that one small town, what is her decision going to be about helping people with access to trusted information, policing what kind of information gets shared? Where do you draw the line? I mean, those are the things that we're all wrestling with at the moment, I think. I mean, it just is something as easy as reading reading the newspaper now. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it used to be it was a printed newspaper and you picked it up every morning from the deli or from the store. Now there's so many other news sources out there, so it's kind of hard to, to nail that down. Yeah, no, exactly. So, Matt, tell us a little bit more about your PhD. What is intellectual history and how does it fit into library land? Good grief. Um, so, yeah, my, my doctorate was about basically people who ran away from the Nazis to the UK and they moved an entire library with them as well. Uh, this is the Warburg Library of Art History. Um, Abby Warburg was an art historical professor in the 19th century, a very innovative, interested in Renaissance art, and he assembled this massive collection. Uh, so there's an amazing apocryphal sort of Cain and Abel story. The Warburg family is a big Jewish banking family and Abby Warburg is the eldest and he's meant to inherit the bank. And he doesn't want to do it. He wants to be an art historian. So he says to the next son, Max, do you want to run the bank? 
and Max is like, sure, what's the catch? And AB's like, you have to buy me any book that I want for the rest of my life. So Max goes, how bad could that get? He becomes the head of the bank. And then A.B. Warburg's like, I'm a Renaissance art historian. I'm going to buy books that are like 500 years old. (laughs) And so he assembled this 11,000 volume collection, which was initially in his house in Hamburg. And it was apparently completely disorganized and astonishing. Like, just like our houses today, you know, there were books lining the bathroom. Like there were books as you went to go to the toilet, except these were all like art historical research volumes. It became incorporated as part of the University of Hamburg. And then in the late 1920s and early 1930s, um, with the rise of extremism in that part of the world, in Germany and Austria, it became increasingly clear that that library was going to have to move. Um, Many of the researchers and the writers affiliated with it were being marked out as sort of uh, being undesirables. And so they achieved this incredible thing, which was that they managed to transfer the entire library uh, to the University of London, And the University of London signed an agreement that they would preserve it as it was, as an independent research institution. I think, in theory, in perpetuity. And now they're running into tension now because they've got this kind of vestigial art history library attached to the University of London. And is it still as necessary in 2018 as it was in the 1930s? And so the interesting thing about Warburg was he was actually an incredible innovator. There's a really good article Uh, in the New Yorker from a few years ago called In the Memory Ward by a writer called uh, Adam Gopnik. And he basically says, you know, Warburg was trying to invent Google images with the technology they had in the 1920s. Like, he's interested in exploring Renaissance art. So he's doing things like building two projectors side by side so you can compare art historical images alongside one another. Uh, He had this completely eccentric cataloging system which works by affinity. So there's like, even now, there's a section in the library called The Evil Eye. And there'll be like a, a witchcraft book and then an anthropological treatise and then a medical journal all put together. But it was strongly focused on encouraging serendipity. Um, and so I got to look at that transfer from Germany to London, but also how it was remembered and how the story was retold. Because as we all know, you know, you tell a story over and over again, it starts to change. We smooth off the rough edges. So as I said, I spent my 20s being a guy who kind of sat in small, quiet archives. I went to the archive of a working mental hospital in Tübingen in Germany because one of my guys had been locked up for a while uh, in the 20s. And so it was super bizarre. I had to walk through this working hospital to where they still had the typewritten notes from like 1926, the Binsfanger archive. And, And there I was reading this stuff, having this connection to history which also influences my relationship to that question we're having about fake news now and misinformation and truth, you know, like, at some point it is an act of faith. Like, you hold a postcard that someone wrote in 1936, or you have a doctor's, uh, you know, a doctor's report from the 1920s, and you have to think, I believe that these are real documents that were written by a living hand at that time, and that generations of archivists have actually stored this and catalogued it in a way that is meaningful i'm not the victim of some enormous conspiracy you know that all of this stuff doesn't exist or it's been planted there to fool me but i mean ultimately it's still an act of faith you look at that piece of paper and you have to say this is genuinely a piece of paper from 1933 like the balance of evidence um allows it so the the doctorate we kind of just plowed on with it me and my supervisor because i had a real passion for sort of preserving the history of this library and it was examined as modern intellectual history, which is like a, what exactly is that subject? And it works like this. So, like, the history of ideas is the big, you know, like, 
when did we come up with the idea of relativity and where has it gone and how has it spread around the world? What is the history of Marxism and what came before Marxism and what did it lead to? Intellectual history is more like the gossip and the office politics of ideas. So it's looking at how specific people interacted, what got funding. Um, it's more sort of applied. You use bits of anthropology, you read lots of people's letters, but instead of it being about big grand concepts, it's about real people thinking and talking and changing their view of the world. And at the time, I had no idea I was ever going to work with libraries. It just happened to be I was studying these interesting people who had moved one. And it's one of those things of like, when people say, why should we research this kind of obscure topic? It turns, it turns out to pay off in really interesting ways. There I was, completely obsessed with these refugees in the 1930s, with no idea that it would ever lead to something like sitting here, talking about Library Island and the Suffolk <laughs> cooperative system. But I, I do believe it's all connected. So, so that's what that doctorate was about. And yes, somehow it came in useful. So that, that occupied four years of my life obsessively, really, uh, which is quite strange. Let's read some tea leaves. As we often do in this podcast, we talk about libraries and the ways uh, that they are changing. And the first thing that has to change is the way libraries see themselves, both the individual building and the profession as a whole. So tell us uh, what you think about the perception uh, or stereotype that, that's perpetuated with you know the shawls and the glasses on the chain and the, the bun and the mm -hmm. hair and the pencil and the bun you know, versus the reality and the struggle of libraries today. That's a really interesting question because I think we all know about this, you know, this kind of old stereotype, the the shelfy stereotype, the the shushing cardigan librarian, you know, like Ugh. the like the ghost librarian from Ghostbusters, kind of. If you can think back to that, I think libraries help people to explore knowledge, information, and culture on their own terms. And to me, you can do that face to face. You can do that with books and printed material on shelves. You can do that in digital spaces as well. I think these issues are deeply local and an institution's responsibilities to the community it serves. And that could be for a public library, that could be the city or the residents of the city or people passing through. For a health librarian, it might be a hospital or a health board and its patients. For a law librarian, it could be the staff in the law firm. But whatever the community is you've been assigned, you help them to explore the relevant information to their needs. And I say information, knowledge and culture because it includes art and play and wisdom and not just hard facts. And I think actually, by and large, libraries and librarians do get that and that the profession has, has probably moved on over the past 20 years. And, you know, these days you will find maker spaces in libraries and there will be a lot of performance and play. And of course, that, that remains an ongoing discussion and it depends on the community. But I think there has been a broad moment. Like most people know that you'll have kids story times in the public library at this point like that. And I think... I think the challenge is really at the level of the local community. I'm not sure it's about a big, broad stereotype anymore, except in the minds of kind of hackneyed advertisers and marketing people. And I got to do some work uh, with public libraries across Queensland, Australia, over the last couple of years with a brilliant academic called Dr. Kate Davis, who is a theorist of information experience. She's basically a social scientist of information. And we helped to write the new vision for public libraries across this state in Australia. So we did a massive amount of online surveying. We visited about 12 towns across this state. The state's like three times the size of France, so it's quite a, a substantial schlep. And we bounced around running workshops, hearing what people thought and wanted and needed. And one of the things came back was the idea that a library needs to be deeply local. And that's why earlier on when we were talking about technology, the idea that we should have technology that is equivalent to or superior to what people have 
in their pockets or in their houses. And that might mean a different thing depending on where you are on Long Island. And it means a different thing if you're on 42nd Street in New York City or whether you're in outback Australia or whether you're in the, the hills of Wales, you know. I think it's really important that we relate most directly to the people we serve and to the people who fund us. And while there is an issue for the profession as a whole, I think that the battles need to be fought locally um, because we're part of the community that we serve. The one thing I will say that I think is a particularly American challenge is at the national level, um, things like the American Library Association, academic librarians have a very strong voice in library leadership at the national level. And that's partly because they have the time, partly because their institutions will send them to conferences, partly because it's seen as, as gathering kudos for those institutions. It's much harder to convince a city that they should be paying to have city staff fly to conferences, sit on boards and panels. And yet, actually, I think public librarianship is the highest calling. Like, you serve whoever comes through your door. People will present with all kinds of challenging behaviour, all kinds of strange information needs. You know, one day you could be etching a glass that someone's going to sell on Etsy. The next one you're comforting a crying child. The next thing someone's overdosed in the bathroom. And then someone else just wants a piece of family history research. And you have to respond to all of those things. And the thing that really frustrates me about American Library Land is that those voices are not front and centre in the leadership of the national discussion about this profession. Like, I admire academic librarians. I think they do great work. Most of them hold incredible progressive values, which can be really useful in this kind of discussion of doing right by the community. But they don't necessarily actually sit on a desk shift and have to deal with the kind of the great American public as they come through the door, all messy and wild and unpredictable. <laughs> messy and wild and unpredictable. You know, I got to do some work in rural Mississippi, and I went to a library service in Philadelphia, Neshoba County, excellent librarian so passionate and so committed and really innovative really thinking we are the trusted space in this community so could we offer some of the city hall services here so instead of people going to city hall which some people might find forbidding in some way or exclusive you can come and do those things at the library so um matt in your opinion uh since we're all over the globe talking to library people and non-library people what common thread do you see in library land internationally and from what we've seen in speaking to library people from all over the world, uh, no matter if you are in Queens or Queensland, uh, we are all doing the same thing, just in unique ways. <laughs> Some of it's stuff that we've been saying already, which is this idea of helping people to explore knowledge, information and culture on their own terms. There's, there's some stretch in that definition. You know, some places are more instructional and teachy. Some, people's, some places are very go and explore and innovate. Some places want you to make stuff. Some places want you more to consume stuff. There's some common ground there. And I think that's really important for specialist libraries as well. I think if you think of a law librarian in a law firm serving the lawyers, increasingly that is about creating automated information products. That's about anticipating your users' needs. Um, there's a really good example in that book, Expect More, where a law librarian, uh, she ran a lunchtime seminar, seminar called Character Assassination 101. And, <laughs> and she was like, you know, are you, are you a lawyer who's got a court case coming up and you need to discredit the opposition's witness she says i can do the background research which discredits the opposition's witness which is a lovely example of anticipating someone's needs and showing how a library can meet them um but as i say there's some difference of opinion on on what exactly it is the library does and and how much the library teaches for example and how much it lets people explore for themselves but what is in common is that it's a very mission-driven and value-driven institution and profession and i think that there's 
there's great positives to that. In an age where everything's about the bottom dollar and so many things are about making money or taking your money, uh, librarianship remains an institution and a profession which is genuinely about service and empowering other people, um, helping people to live well together, and it attracts people who want to do that kind of work. Like many people who work in Libraryland are there because they have some value system that they want to help people. I mean, you said it, Bob, and to make the world a better place in some way that it's not entirely sort of flowery or sort of hippy-dippy, but in a, in a kind of practical way. They want people in their community to live better together and they want to take those actions. So there's so many tech trends that you see that you see that are out there. What do you see that's in the forefront right now? Everybody's talking about 3D printing, but what other things like teaching coding have you seen in library land? Some of the new, innovative, maybe different takes on things. Look, that's a it's a really interesting question, but at the same time, I think there's there's a lot of stuff in common around the globe. So as you say, the the rise of the makerspace and 3D printing, the idea that we're all going to teach kids to code and that, that that's a venue for libraries. Libraries love it because it's a way of getting government money. Like there's a lot of European Union money for that kind of stuff in Europe. Also stuff around privacy and managing data. I can see Metro New York Library Council is doing some work on that. I can see that in the Netherlands, a, comp- uh, a library innovation unit called Frisk Lab is doing work uh, transforming the data detox kit which is actually an eight-step program to finding out what the world knows about you online and how to manage and control that. They're actually recalibrating that for their community and their users, so it's very specific to them. But the thing is, I see that stuff everywhere. I see privacy, coding, maker technologies. I actually think the real issue is not so much technology, but how we relate to people. Like, I think the technology is a tool in the same way that the building is a tool. And the real question is always our relationship. And... The real question is how much power we're going to surrender on the librarian's end of that relationship. And you can do that with a piece of paper or a conversation, or you can do it with a piece of technology. The educator, Angela Myers, has this real, really nice line where she's like, the thing that's changed isn't that the technology is digital, it's that our relationship is interactive. And that as institutions, there's an expectation that we will respond. And I think that's something that can still be worked on on every single level. That includes how we treat people in face-to-face interactions, but it's also about whether we're designing things that are truly not only responsive, but have the capacity for the user to surprise us. So if I go to a library makerspace and they're basically doing a lesson, like, hey, we're all going to build a a card robot with LED lights on it, but you're all going to follow the same steps and you're all going to do what the teacher told you. There's not a lot of exploration and freedom in that, and I find it frustrating. And what I like, uh, Chris, you mentioned uh, a presenter who came to Suffolk County who basically said, you go and play with these gadgets and figure out what they do. Mm -hmm. Who was that? Uh, Brian Pitchman. Right, so that attitude pleases me because it's really about empowerment and trusting people to explore. I think that is what library's gift to the future will be. So irrespective of the level of technology, it's really about the amount of power we allow to the user which means we have to do an enormous amount of work anticipating the needs of the user, facilitating them, changing and responding when those needs aren't what we expected. I think this is really something where we're starting to think on a a longer term and a bigger scale about, it's not even just about what happens in the next five years or, you know, I was working with a library that was just about to be revamped and it had been opened in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about the idea that when they planned this library, there were no smartphones, there were no tablets. Boris Yeltsin was still the leader of Russia. Wow. No one had ever heard the song Who Let the Dogs Out. Like, <laughs> they had not planned for what the 21st century would be like. 
And this shows in ways like, you know, old libraries often need loads of power boards for plugging your devices into because no one anticipated that we would all have all these gadgets that needed charging. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's something similar now for us, laying the ground for a future that we can't quite see coming and mm -hmm. working out what those values are that we are going to carry forward irrespective of what the technology is. And I also think, God forbid, that there would be a life after libraries, and I don't think libraries are going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was reading these really dark novels by a science fiction writer called Charles Stross, who does these kind of Lovecraftian novels about kind of the end of the world with strange otherworldly creatures slowly taking over the earth. And this series of books is about eight books in, and you can see that nothing good is going to come. It's a very apocalyptic series of books. And at some point, one of the characters says, we're not even looking to sort of save the world anymore. We're just trying to ensure that something that remembers being human might survive. Wow. Which is this incredibly <laughs> bleak vision. But, you know, even in a world that might not have libraries... If we can keep this ethic of service and this idea that the user should be empowered, I think you could imagine a distant future, even a, a pretty worst-case scenario future, where something that remembers what libraries gave us might survive. That some kind of information institution that actually empowers the user and has an ethic of service might live on. So even if we found ourselves in the Mad Max scenario, mm -hmm. that's still a gift you can give, whether the technology is steampunk, medieval, or you know, Apple's bright, shiny future. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's what we have to offer in the world of technology. What other directions do you think libraries should be going in that they not? It oh, look, that's uh, it's a good question. The, the directions that libraries should be going in that they've not yet explored. I think, I think the thing is, I've seen so many people doing cool things, and there are so many people having bright ideas that, that little old me is not the person to say, oh, here's something you haven't thought of yet. If there's something I still don't see enough of in public library land, it's the at the moment, there's a very strong association of the service with the building, uh, which is good and fine, but ultimately the building is only one of our tools. I would be really interested to see people experimenting more, not just with off-site library service, but with embedded library service. What would it mean to, what would it mean to station a public librarian in a hospital or in another setting? What would it mean to have them on the trains and buses and ferries? What would it mean if we took them and put them into other units? In the same way that corporate librarians, like a corporate librarian might be attached to a project team as an information professional, what would it mean to take a public librarian and put them somewhere else for the good of the community? And that might not be about the collection, it might, not be, it might be just about meeting information needs, but what else could we do with this service that's not just about the building? I'm going to just squeeze something in here though because I have a pet rant and this seems like the perfect place to insert it briefly. So... I don't know if it's Library of Congress or Dewey, but in a lot of American public libraries, on the ends of the shelves, they have a whole bunch of numbers. Mm -hmm. And they don't have words. They yeah. don't tell you this is travel, or this is, you know, like books about South America, or engineering, or rocket science. Maybe you get fiction and non-fiction, and then you have a bunch of numbers on the ends of the shelves. Mm -hmm. This drives me crazy. Because you, 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 there's an assumption that um, either a librarian's going to be there to tell you what the number is, or you should know what the number yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I went to a place in Pennsylvania, which will remain nameless, but it was hysterical because it was beautifully decorated. They'd made fancy displays, lovely kids' corners, everything like that. I could not find a single thing in that library because it was just numbers on the ends of shelves. And when you went back to the issue desk, there was a little brochure decoding the numbers back into words. I was like, why don't you just put the words on the ends of the shelves? <laughs> um, but this is a specifically American challenge. Like, I see less of this in any other country. And then you come to the U.S., and one of the things that's really notable in, say, for example, Denver Public Library, which is a big, glorious city center library, 
I can't actually find any nonfiction because there's these numbers everywhere. Um, so that's something that I would wish would be changed in American Library Land. As I break my mic. <laughs> he did it silently. Okay. Though, I did it silently. I hit the mute button. <laughs> That's great. He's, hit, he's punch drunk. He just keeps boxing, smacking, he's sparring with the microphone. But it does make For a lot of sense. Feel, and think about it as like. Lucky to be, you know, what's that, Bob? I'm sorry. I said I feel lucky being remote. This time. Yeah, oh, I, I yeah. fear. I fear for my personal safety as, as Chris grows increasingly pugnacious. Uh, he's just angry with the enemies of Library Land. He doesn't mean to lash out at me. <laughs> so you know, think about it in terms of okay. So if you have one stack that's really long, it could be a whole number of topics. But think about it from a decorating point of view. Mm-hmm. Maybe those words don't need to all be linear. Maybe some words can be based upon the size of that collection. Maybe some words can be smaller, some words can be yeah. maybe um, vertical versus horizontal, and they could be larger based upon the size of the collection. Right. Just from a decorating, almost aesthetic standpoint. Yeah. You know, um, where we've all seen online those things where there's a group of words, and some of them are linear, some of them are up, you know. Right, like a wordle or whatever. Right, yeah. some of them are larger than others, and some are smaller. Think about that as your end cap yeah, right. on top of the numbers. Yeah. Maybe the numbers are there, and then you have like a um, like vinyl, like a vinyl, almost like a uh, if like a cricket vinyl cutter kind right. of thing. Yeah. With or like wallpaper with the with the words. So you could do it with a, po- with a vinyl poster printer. Right. Well, and also this is the kind of work that graphic designers specialize in, like finding a way to communicate information in a way that's visually appealing. Like a little more graphic design in libraries would go a long way. And as I say, as a member of the public, even as someone who works with libraries, the fact that I go in and I cannot tell what's on the nonfiction shelves seems to me like a wayfinding fail. Like, that's like the opposite of good customer service. So I don't know if you feel the same, Bob, or what your take on it is. I, I, I absolutely do. You know what? Customer service is our number one priority, right? Is that what, is that what we're talking about? Or? Yeah, and, but the idea of you know, customer service isn't just how you relate as a person. It's also like, what did you, how did you sign the signpost the shelves like what's your wayfinding like you know that is also serving the customer if the customer looks at the shelf end and sees numbers that they can't decode i think that's also a customer service fail it's a big huge customer service fail i'm sorry you had that experience and where was it pennsylvania is that what you said yeah i mean i just noticed in american public libraries it's more common that you'll have those numbers on the ends of the shelves rather than say uh, a list of books by topic or genre or category and i think that would be a nice challenge for public libraries to solve Make sure that people can tell what books are on what shelves without having to know Dewey or Library of Congress. I can hear right. the naysayers right now. That's our job. They're supposed to come to us to help us. Help well, that's how it's always been. That's how yeah. it's always been. Why would you? Well, but then, you know, you put the vinyl on the, on the wood ends and, and it'll ruin the wood. And what happens if we do a shift? And what happens if, if the sky falls? And what happens if there's a trap door? And what happens if... There's a plague of locusts. Ha! Plague of locusts could get interesting. And I, I think there's good work being done by people. There's a, a woman called Donna Lonclo, L-A-N-C-L-O-S, who mostly works with academic libraries, but she's actually an anthropologist, and she does anthropology of libraries. So she hangs out, she looks at what the community does, she does a kind of ethnography of what's going on. It's something like user experience, but it's more creative and more thorough. And she's really looking at what are your users doing within this space and even off-site. Like, what if they're reading things on the bus? Like, the bus is part of that library relationship then. And I think people like that can look at a community and how it uses a library and just really raise that question, how is this serving the needs of the user that they have to go away and decode your signs. <laughs> you know, like, 
They need the Enigma machine in order to find their cookbook. Yeah, you know, that's exactly how I felt. So I, I felt that quite strongly in Denver. Lovely library, but literally I wandered the nonfiction floors and I went, this is strange. I have absolutely no clue what I'm looking at. I don't know what's going to be down that shelf. On the, ups- on the other side, and this is a technology podcast, so even though I've avoided it, we should talk about some technology. Um, the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, a really, really good university, has a great library. And it has an amazing thing on their library catalogue, which I really recommend people go and check out. Like, just Google the UTS library catalogue. So their former university librarian, an astonishing character called Mal Booth, who had worked in the military, then been at the Military Museum and finally become a university librarian. He was very big on having artists and artists in residence at the library and encouraging creative work and really fancy design. And he got uh, Chris Gall, this artist, to just make artworks from, from the library services and infrastructure, not just the collection. And one of the things Chris did was make this thing called the Library Spectrogram. So the, the, Dewey, the Dewey categories got colour-coded like a rainbow. So like 600 technology is like pink, another one will be green, another one will be blue. And it was a lovely artwork that hung on the wall. And then what the team at University of Technology Sydney did that was really, really clever was they made this into a functional tool, which is part of the online catalogue. So if you go to the UTS library catalogue, just above the search box, there's a little colour spectrum, like a little rainbow bar going from left to right. Mm -hmm. And each of the colours represents a top-level category. And then as you click it, it expands... So all the shades of pink within 600 become all the subcategories for technology. And you can keep clicking, and the colors unfold and unfurl. And it's a way for you to just browse, even in an online space. Because so much of online is about search or clicking through keywords. And this is the equivalent of just kind of running your hand along the shelves. And it turned, it began as this quite fanciful art project, and then became something which is entirely pragmatic as a discovery tool, and is part of their online catalog. So I really like that as an example of really creative, intuitive, user-centered discovery. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really quite astonishing, and people should check it out. It's a really nice piece of work. So our last question, what do you think, and we probably have covered this at this point because we've been, been talking about so many different interesting things. What do you think is the biggest hurdle libraries need to clear, other than the stereotype that we talked about earlier, in, in order to evolve and become community centers as much as repositories of print and digital materials because community centers is where we're headed yeah. if we're not there already. No, I entirely agree. Do you know, it, it's, it's simply a focus on relationships and relationship skills. It's the ability to collaborate with other parts of the community and other institutions. It's the ability to, to sell the fact that that collaboration would be useful, whether it was for the health services or for the city or for law enforcement or whoever else. And it's also about negotiation skills. Like, Libraryland traditionally has not had to do a lot of negotiating, but increasingly it's necessary to understand how to do that dance with a supplier or with a client to say, this is what we can offer you, this is what you can do for us, and find new ways of building and strengthening relationships. I think, to the extent we even think about ourselves as a service, that might change because it's actually more that we're part of an ongoing conversation and we facilitate the information needs of a community, but it's not so much like the collections are our ammunition and then the technology is, is what guides us. It's more about what relationships can we establish that are useful for the community. And I think there is still more work to be done in terms of relationship building, going out and convincing people that a partnership would be worthwhile, demonstrating the value of the library as an information institution. You know, ultimately, almost every community, certainly in the developed world, has a local information institution, which is this incredibly powerful thing. 
and if it evolves sufficiently to meet the needs of the 21st century, uh, that's something that will be enduring and beneficial. But I think the thing that is the struggle is for us to build really strong and meaningful relationships with new partners and with new parts of the community. It makes a lot of sense. It really, really does. We have to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. We have to come back in a minute with our 032 list, which is the list of top 10 questions we ask every person who comes on the podcast. Now, we're going to have to probably fudge this a little bit because you don't work in a library. I can I can fudge with the best of them. All right. So um, <laughs> we call it our 032 list, and we have to give credit where credit is due to Melanie Cardone from the Long Republic Library who came up with the idea for the, uh, the questions. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. So we're back with Matt Finch, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Visit their site because they educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. We're not going to hold you to the answers, but it's a fun list. So first question, what did you want to be when you were a child? Huh. Possibly an astronaut, almost certainly Indiana Jones. that whole notion of exploring and going off on adventures and discovering stuff was a big thing for me as a kid it's interesting the notion of role models you know as a kid i thought dr indiana jones and doctor who were pretty cool i ended up getting my phd i think somewhere in the way somewhere in there that kind of planted the seed in me i think it's really good we finally have a woman as doctor who but it makes you realize that actually things like role models really matter in pop culture. Like there was no doubt in my mind that it was possible to become a doctor of something because you saw these adventurous thinking heroes doing it. And possibly a witch because my very first dress up was my mother dressed me up as a witch for school Halloween, which was quite unusually cross dressy, but I went with it and she scissored open the witch's hat about halfway. So it hinged like a lid and then she used bubble wrap to make an exposed brain. You know, like the popping mm-hmm. wrapper that you, sure. you have in packaging. So she made an exposed brain pulsing underneath the hinge of this hat. Oh, wow. And I thought I was the coolest dude in 1985. <laughs> and some mix of those things. Uh, I guess I got the PhD, so that bit became true. Do you have ransom? Fo- I mean, do you have photos of that uh, that uh, costume? Do you know, I, I don't know. I actually have a witch photo, tragically. Um, but it's That'll really one of my vivid, you know, I was like five years old or something. And it was such a vivid memory to me uh, as being part of who you are. I think I, think I was super lucky that uh, dressing up and play and storytelling were just totally acceptable to my family. So who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian? Oh, you were on the wrong question, Bob. Am I really? You were on you went wrong question too. What I do? It's like time oh my travel. God. It's fine. And this question, it was funny because this is your question. Now I want to edit. What is your first memory of a library? Who brought you to the library for the first time, right? Yep. yep. This really pleases me because this is a question I ask in my workshop. Yes, this is a question on Library Island. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw that, I just started giggling. That was so perfect. Great meeting of minds. On Library Island, I ask people about their first memory because... It's your first connection to the mission of the library. Like, it's your first connection to the library as this professional space that's here to to serve your information needs. So I love that we often have in early childhood this quite intimate experience. So I love that you ask this question as well. Um, I remember going to a British library in the 1980s. 
Uh, it was kind of like a bus station of the soul, like mismatched scratchy carpet tiles on the floor, kind of damp, kind of unappealing in all honesty, except my mother would take me there to get books out and she would get books out that she'd read as a kid. And she's not very geeky now, but she liked sci-fi in her youth. So I even remember reading things like Day of the Triffids, that thing with the walking plants. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is, they made like an old-time movie of it. It's a book from the 50s or the 60s. But reading that from the public library and thinking, my mum read this when she was young, and just feeling that connection down the generations. And really that being one of the first times as a kid where I thought, wow, my parents were children once. Um, that was a really special connection for me. Okay, so we're going to modify this next question a little bit, because it's about when you decide to work in a library. So uh, when did you decide to be so involved in library land? And obviously this is kind of like a first career for you. So in library land, a lot of times um, it's a second career for people. Right. So um, tell us when you made that decision. So I guess after the experience with Christchurch New Zealand, which we talked about in the wake of the earthquakes, I ended up doing work in a town called Parks, which is in central west New South Wales in Australia. It's about 10,000 people in the town, 15,000 people in the county. It's not really remote, but it's definitely rural. And initially through doing literacy work, I noticed that the librarians there were very adventurous and cool. And I began doing short consultations with them, which was when we did things like teen zombie battles, like with 100 teens fighting to survive in like a live action role play in an abandoned farm in the middle of nowhere in Australia. We did time travel role plays. We did um, games nights in the pub to reach out to sort of farmers and adults and people who wouldn't necessarily come into the library. They were a very adventurous group of people. And some of that developed later on over in a relationship that ran for several years. But I think that was the first time where I thought this isn't just going to be, oh, I recognize that librarians are more awesome than I knew. But this is actually something that is going to consume a considerable part of my career. And this is something that is going to call to me. And I guess, had that not happened, it's very strange because I guess I was on track to be a career academic. But I just didn't want that, really. I felt like I'd, I'd got what I needed to out of reading my German archives from the 1930s. <laughs> and I was, I was ready to venture out into the daylight, um, like some kind of strange vampire. Or like escaping from the basement of Turbot and Duck's recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, that was a, that was a big change for me. So now on to the real question number four: uh, Who is your favorite fictional librarian? Uh, you know, I'm I'm worried that every possible answer has already been given 56 episodes into this show because I was racking. I was like, well, obviously someone said Jars from Buffy. There's that Jedi librarian in the Star Wars prequels who gets it wrong, like she doesn't know where the planet <laughs> is and all this kind of stuff. I I'm sure someone has said this before, but really the orangutan from Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. Yeah, so it's been mentioned once or yeah, twice, yeah. I, you know, the orangutan kind of doesn't give two hoots, is incredibly violent, <laughs> greedy, and kind of just lollops around doing uh, what they want. I think the orangutan is a librarian who's unfortunately be transformed into a beast in some kind of magical experiment. <laughs> and so rather than pick a fictional character that reflects all the values and wholesome things that, uh, that we've been talking about in this episode, you know, sometimes you just want to cut loose and just be yourself, and not worry about the higher aspects of our calling. So I quite like that at least in one corner of literature, there's an entirely selfish, animalistic librarian who basically just exists to eat and cause trouble. That's cool. Okay, so what would you be doing if you weren't working with libraries? 
Uh, look, I'm quite a workaholic, so I'd be doing something similar to what I do, and I consult with other sectors and institutions anyway. I'd probably be doing more healthcare because that uh, that ethic of service is important to me. And there are actually in the age of patient-centered care where we let patients' choices determine what the health journey is like, there's a lot more connection between healthcare and librarianship than you think. Both sectors could learn from each other. So if there were less libraries in my life, there would be more healthcare. So what is your favorite section of the library? Oh, okay. <laughs> Super hard. No, because honestly, the, the first answer I want to give is almost contradictory to everything I've said in this discussion. But... As a teen and in my 20s, I actually loved the shelfiest, dankest spaces. So I already just told you, like in my doctoral days, hiding on this floor with the stinky old parliamentary books because basically no one would be there and you could sink into the text. When I was in high school, I used to hide in the bookstore because I could find like these corners amongst the shelves where you could basically like hole up with your Walkman that you weren't supposed to have and grab a book and kind of just immerse yourself in the things that you really cared about. So weirdly, there was a time where the shelfiest, most neglected part of the library was probably my favorite. These days, I would look at the kids and teens space because that gives you a strong sense of the vibe of a library. Like it's not where I'm going to hang out. But if I see there's a good kids and teens space that's thoughtfully been put together, I know that this community, this library is really thinking about the community they serve. And it's a great litmus for the library's attitude to people in general. And then after that, I'd be in the cafe eating your lovely croissants and drinking your hazelnut latte as we as we were earlier today. Okay, so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library in general? Like oh. If you could add anything to a library, what would it be? Oh, the holodeck. I mean... Oh, God, yeah. That's your infinite space and budget. I, again, maybe it's utopian of me, and I know there's lots of terrible tech bro utopian ship around these days. You know, like everyone thinks we're going to have this cosmic future and people who haven't thought about social responsibility sort of imagining these gadgets but i think one day we're going to end up with something like the holodeck and i want that to be run along library values of service and responsibility and respect and freedom to discover so really if i could wave the magic wand we'd have a holodeck in every library what do you love about your library i think this is true of every single library i've worked in it's the sense of safety and the sense of welcome like Hmm. It's as simple as that. You feel safe to be there and you feel welcomed and you feel as if you are invited to belong. Uh, that's the thing I love about every library that, uh, that does that for me. Okay, so since you don't work in a library, this is more geared towards people who work in there, but since you spent so much time in a library, what's the weirdest thing that you've ever seen in a library? Not necessarily the worst. Mm-hmm. Well, Remember, we don't have an explicit rating here. I was going to say, we can keep it quite toned down. There was a fascinating discussion around Code Brown in public libraries on social media a while back, which I probably don't need to explain too much, (laughs) but but we won't go there. In the space of one morning, when I try and explain what public libraries do in Australia, I saw the desk shift open up at nine o'clock in the morning, and I saw somebody come in with a child who wanted to return a book and ask some questions and talk about what they'd read. And then somebody phoned up trying to find the unmarked grave of a stillborn child from that town, someone who was going to fly out that town to, to pay commemoration to some distant relative. Wow. So the next inquiry from this lighthearted children's thing was this really somber, you know, like, oh, I need to know they didn't keep proper records. They didn't put proper tombstones down for stillborn children in the 1950s. It was like my great aunt or something, and I want to visit. It's a family duty. And the family history librarian said, I'm going to look it up. 
and if you do choose to come out to this town, like I will drive you to the cemetery and show you where the marker is and accompany wow. you. Super going the extra mile, really, really thoughtful service. And then the third thing that happened that morning after the kid and after the, the grave inquiry was that a guy from a biker gang uh, turned up. Like Australia has these sort of quasi-biker gangs in, in Australian culture on the fringes of the law. And he knew that the children's librarian in town was really good at arts and crafts and he wanted her to stick a kind of logo on the side of his fuel tank because it had to look just perfect. So he came in and asked for that in the same morning and she sort of looked at the manager of like, am I allowed to go out to the car park and, and decorate a, a bikey's fuel tank? And she was like, yeah, sure, that's serving the community as well. So That's she went. Cool. Did out. she come back? Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, in one piece, <laughs> yeah. he was very pleased. He, you know, her reputation has obviously got around in the pub or something like that. You know, oh, you know, she'll be good. She'll be good with stickers and all that. You know, and um, so in the space of one morning, we saw really sweet child inquiry, a really serious search for a grave. And then a guy from a biker gang wanting his bike decorated. And I was like, wow, that's what public libraries do. So, Matt, who would you say is your favorite regular patron? Well, again, I move around a lot again, yeah. and yeah, have, have these sort of second order clients. Like I often serve the institution rather than the community. But I spend a lot of time working in parks in New South Wales. And over the course of several years, I got to see a bunch of high schoolers go from kind of the beginning of high school to graduating. And we got a group of them to form a writer's group. And they wrote for NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month, which oh, wow. happens in November. Mm -hmm. And they formed this lovely little gang of like four or five kids. We saw them sort of grow and change and become adults and move on with their lives. And they actually got coverage um, from NaNoWriMo in the US because it was so strange to have all these teens in sort of like country Australia in this kind of red dirt town mm -hmm. all working on their novels each year. But I was so impressed by their passion and their creativity and how excited they were by the opportunities the library offered. Like this was mining and farming town. You could play sports. You could maybe go out and have some adventures in the bush. But there wasn't a lot to do. And actually, their opportunity to make up their own stories and tell their stories, they don't need to all go and become professional novelists for that to have been worthwhile. And I guess I just used to like seeing that group hanging out, eating potato chips, drinking soda, and writing their novels every November. I thought that was pretty cool. Okay, our final question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Oh, man, they shouldn't be missing out on anything. You know, I know we, we still technically need the library card just to demonstrate that you're a resident or whatever. You have the right to do something. But I think that's the wrong way around. We shouldn't be selling people on having the library card. Everyone in the community should just feel they can come through the doors and get what they need. You might have seen PBS have a short video at the moment. Um, Kristen Arnett, the, the novelist and librarian, she did a little pitch mm -hmm. saying it's not enough for you to say that you love the library. We need you to come and use us. Right. And the trouble is with that phrasing. I don't think it's her fault. She's absolutely brilliant. I think PBS have probably framed it that way. What service says we need you to come and use us? Like hospitals don't need to and say that. And it's free that. nonetheless. Yeah, right. Yeah. And schools don't need to say that. So really, it shouldn't be about the card or selling the benefits of the card. We should be going out and meeting the community's wants and needs. And if you need a card, that's purely because you need a way to identify someone. It's almost the least important part of the relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should be trying to sell people on our services. We should be going out and making ourselves indispensable. And I actually don't care if you can wave a piece of plastic at me or not. If you're within my community... I need to serve your wants and needs when it comes to information, knowledge, and culture. Bravo. So thanks, thanks again for, for, for enduring our list of questions and for, and for listening to us for, uh, for all this time. 
give us uh, some of your plugs, mechanicaldolphin.com. It's that simple. There's a site called mechanicaldolphin.com. That's my home online. People can go there and find out more about what I do. I try and share the things that I make so people can use them for themselves. They don't, they don't need me to be part of that equation. What I have to say is thank you both. I've, I've been a listener, but it's really exciting to be here. It's a gorgeous library here. Um, you've been incredible hosts, and really, compared to being chained to a pipe in the basement of Turbo's <laughs> recording studio, it's, you know, they gave me a croissant and they gave me a hazelnut latte. <laughs> like, this was my first glimpse of sunlight and my first taste of coffee after many years in the subterranean caves of Turbot and Duckland. Oh, man. Um, I hope people listening who aren't listening to the Turbot and Duck podcast realize that they need to check that out. Yes. Uh, you know, maybe you know, maybe Library Pros is the shot and Turbot and Duck is the chaser. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're going to be wow. in big trouble. We're in big trouble now. Turbot and Duck has awesome swag. They have hoodies and sweatshirts. Yeah, they actually have real swag. They had, you know, I, I, hell, I even bought one. I bought a t-shirt. Right, you Is see, really? I'm gonna buy one too. But you know how those are made, right? They're made in that basement. <laughs> We're all down there. Did oh make, no! Did you make those, Matt? I used to hand stitch Turbot and Duck hoodies oh, no. until I got should, arthritis. Should I look for like a secret code somewhere that says Matt made this? Yeah, do you know? I I started trying to stitch a little frowny face into the <laughs> into the into the washing instructions, the little label on the base of the hoodie. No, you you have to work your way up. Once your fingers stop working properly and you're not nimble enough to sew anymore. That's when you move up to pushing trolleys. If you're very lucky, you get to speak to one of them. And then if they like your accent, they let you record something on the podcast. It's, <laughs> wow. it's, there's a whole secret behind the scenes. We're, oh, boy. We're going to get sued. We're so going to get sued. They are, uh, they are marvelous, wonderful people who I, I can't say enough about. Uh, mainly because they implant an explosive in you when you leave, <laughs> and if you dare to go against them, they will detonate it. That's why. That's why I've got the entire planet between me and Australia right now, just in case they explode the charge. Oh good, my goodness! Uh, a good barrier. Yeah. That's it. I'm actually here to seek asylum. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that is hysterical. How do we follow that up? And I can't even believe I had to say that. That's all the time we have for this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on our show. Visit the contact us section on our website, thelibrarypros.com. We'll have links and photos from this episode on the site and us just laughing our butts off. Visit us on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros or at facebook.com and slash thelibrarypros. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's loud. <laughs> and uh, don't forget to tell your friends because that's how people find out about us. And that's how our listenership grows. Remember that the opinions stated by the library pros and the guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So, like we always say, we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sagem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.